The Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network presents Acts to the Root with Bojidar Marinov, where you get a Christian Reconstructionist perspective on the pressing issues of today. Welcome to episode 63 of Acts to the Root Podcast, part of the War Room Productions. I'm Bo Marinov, and for the next 30 minutes we will tackle a topic which for all 2,000 years of church history, still remains unresolved. Tithing. Now, don't expect me to resolve it in one little episode of one little podcast. If dozens of books by all kinds of theologians of all kinds of denominations and tens of thousands of sermons by all kinds of preachers of all kinds of denominations have not led to anything close to agreement, not even to approximate agreement on the issue. I sometimes think that tithing is a bit overrated topic, just like water baptism. If you remember in the episode where, where we talked about water baptism, I pointed out that the proportion of our modern theological talk that we have devoted to water baptism doesn't in any possible way match the proportion the Bible devotes to it. We have at the most half dozen verses in the Bible, a very low share compared to the whole scripture, dealing with water baptism. While in our modern theological discussions we have thousands of books and hundreds of thousands, if not millions, of chapters, lectures, articles, seminary textbook lessons, etc., that deal with the topic of water baptism. I wonder sometimes, where do we find all the material to comment on if the Bible contains so little on this issue? The same problem I see in our theological treatment of the tithe. There's very little on it in the Bible, although admittedly more than about water baptism. And most of it is not prescriptive in any possible way or can serve to give us any practical instructions or commands as to what we should do about it in the modern church. Now, don't get me wrong, I'm not saying that the tithe is not important, just like I'm not saying that the sacraments are not important. But importance has its degrees, and it is perfectly possible for the importance of some things to be overestimated for different reasons. For one, it may be overestimated because of false theology based on a fallacious worldview. To think of an example, it would be Paul's discussion of the virtues of celibacy in 1 Corinthians 7:32 through 35. Paul's words are important, but a false ideology like that of the Roman church will lead us to ascribe too much spirituality to a special class of single people. Or importance may be overemphasized because it is in the personal interest of a special class of people to establish their power over other people. And I'm sure you can easily figure what class of people may be served by overemphasizing the sacraments or the tithe, especially the tithe. Thus, as important as the tithe is, it is not awfully commonly covered in the Bible, at least not as much as other things like righteousness and justice, which most of the time go unmentioned from the church pulpits in America. But if you have listened to most episodes of Acts of the Root, by now you know why the vast majority of pulpits seldom mention justice and righteousness, the founder's throne. This is not our topic now, however. This week we want to look into a connection seldom made by most churches today, even when they claim to preach biblically on the tithe. The topic is, what is the responsibility of the tither as to where his tithe goes? Responsibility and accountability have become fashionable words in the church and landscape over the last several decades. Now, when I say fashionable, I don't mean that accountability is not a good thing. In fact, accountability in terms of giving an account to other Christians about one's beliefs, 
words and actions is part of the very nature of the covenant and it is an integral part of covenantal thinking. Remember when we talked in the first episode of Acts to the Root about the nature of biblical spirituality and about the biblical definition of a spiritual man, we saw that the Bible has only one definition of a spiritual man, one who judges everything. Biblical spirituality, therefore, requires that all the actions of all the people pass careful scrutiny as to whether they are in agreement with the, with the ethics and the worldview of the Bible. The spiritual man must judge, must judge everything, and his actions must be subject to judgment. Uh, or, as Hebrews 5.14 indicates, a mature person is one who has trained his senses to discern between good and evil in everything, and he must judge himself, especially himself, as Matthew 7, 3-5 and Luke 6, 41-42 command. Therefore, in a world biblical spirituality, you will have to judge if you are spiritual, and conversely, you will have to be judged because as spiritual as you are, you aren't perfectly so, and therefore you are not above judgment by other people. In this mutual judgment between covenant people who are all spiritual and yet who are all still imperfect in their spirituality comes through accountability. We're judged by others in terms of good and evil in all we believe, speak, and do, and we judge others in terms of good and evil in all they believe, speak, and do. This mutual judgment is what restrains us from going rogue on God and His covenant. This mutual judgment is what keeps us accountable to God. Unfortunately, however, this is not what modern pastors and preachers have in mind when they speak about accountability. And I'm speaking here not just of any pastors and preachers, but of evangelical and reformed pastors and preachers, or what passes for evangelical or reformed. Ironically, the Reformation started with Luther's attack against Rome's ecclesiology, an ecclesiology that placed all the power in the church in the hands of a self-appointed institutional elite which institutional elite insisted it was by the right of its institutional power free of any accountability to the mass of ordinary believers and members of the universal church. Today, we like to look back to the Reformation as a gigantic battle of theological concept, but the reality is, for the first seven years after Luther posted his thesis on the door of that church in Wittenberg, the arguments used against the German reformer were only ecclesiological arguments. By what authority are you saying all these things? Who are your elders? What church are you a member of? Etc. The theological debates didn't start until 1524 when Erasmus published his diatribe on the freedom of the will, to which Luther replied the next year in his The Bondage of the Will. The resistance against the Reformation was initially not against Luther's theology. In fact, quite a few Roman theologians were willing to acknowledge the basic points of his theology as valid. The argument was against his claim that the Pope and his cardinals and archbishops uh, should be subject to the same rules for accountability and judgment as the ordinary believers. That's why the real controversy of the Reformation was not the doctrine of Scripture, nor the doctrine of predestination versus free will, not even the doctrine of salvation by works or by faith, but Luther's doctrine of the priesthood of all believers, and even more than that, what followed from it, the doctrine of the right and duty of private judgment. Yes, the same doctrine of the right and duty of private judgment, which today is forgotten and never even mentioned in any Reformed or Evangelical Church throughout the United States. That doctrine that gave the spark of the Reformation has zero sermons devoted to it on sermon audio today, and the vast majority of Reformed or Evangelical churchgoers 
have never even heard of it, and certainly not from their pastors or elders or seminary professors. For all practical purposes, what passes for Protestant or evangelical today has returned to Roman Catholicism. Under this papist ecclesiology restored in the churches that claim to be Protestant or evangelical, accountability is only applied to ordinary members, but not to church leadership. Obviously, if ordinary members are not priests, uh, that is, if their priesthood is not reaffirmed in the church theology, and if their right and duty of private judgment is not established and affirmed because it is forgotten and not preached about at all, there is no theological principle that can keep the elders or the session accountable for anything they do, except, of course, to themselves, which is no different than the practice of modern police departments to investigate themselves. And, of course, clear themselves of any wrongdoing, even when cops commit obvious crimes like murder or robbery. In my article, Modern Presbyterianism and the Destruction of the Principle of Plurality of Elders, I have shown how the very constitutions of Presbyterian denominations are so written as to prevent any judicial action against church sessions who commit injustice. Now, on the surface, individual elders are liable to be taken to court, but that means nothing once you realize that, according to the same denomination's constitutions, rule in the churches is only joint, never individual. Thus, sessions as bodies make decisions, but sessions as bodies are not liable, and you can't take a session to court. And if you take individual elders to court, they always have the session's decision as their justification. Accountability is only for the ordinary believers who are not protected by the legal power of their status as members of the session. For them, their membership, so-called, only makes them vulnerable to all kinds of injustices from the leadership. But for the leadership, accountability is zero. Thus, when you hear the word accountability coming out of the mouth of a modern reformed or evangelical pastor or preacher, keep in mind, it doesn't mean what you think it means. It only means that he keeps for himself the power to control your life and part of your money under the pretext of ministering to you, while at the same time you're not allowed to ask about or seek accountability from him as to what he does with the power he has and with the money you're expected to contribute to, to his so-called ministry. Responsibility, R.J. Rushton, he says in his Institutes of Biblical Law, pages 481 through 484, is not a one-way street. Even when we enter a covenant with God who has no obligation to anything in his creation, he still voluntarily assumes certain obligations on his part of the covenant. It would be even more applicable to relationships between men. There is never a one-way street relationship where only one of the parties is responsible to the other. Responsibility must be a two-way street. Otherwise, as Rashtuni shows from biblical examples, it is not true responsibility but pure theft. In a relationship where only one party bears responsibility and therefore is accountable to the other, the other party is nothing more than a thief and can't be any kind of a minister. This context and background of true biblical responsibility and accountability is the only legitimate context and background for any discussion on the tithe. Without first laying the foundation of true biblical relationship, of mutual judgment and accountability, including between members of the church and ministers of the church, we can't really talk about the tithe. Without such background, the tithe becomes nothing more than extortion money, a fee levied on the ordinary believer to acknowledge him as part of the visible church. A refusal to pay the fee makes him unofficially, makes him actually officially unadmitted into the church. 
Again, not that the tithe itself is unlawful or unbiblical, but the context in which it is paid, one-way responsibility between the ordinary members and the church leadership, and the total lack of accountability for the leadership makes the tithe nothing more than theft. Unless we acknowledge this ethical judicial reality of any relationship between church members and church ministers, not just the tithe, we're doomed to create nothing more than the same papist bureaucracy as Rome. And indeed, the vast majority of the so-called local churches in the United States are nothing more than local popedoms. This last week was 500 years of the beginning of the Reformation, and yet looking at the church and landscape in America today, one can hardly see anything else but Rome replicated 300,000 times. Given that ethical judicial context of two-way responsibility between men and their institutions, then, what is the biblical way for us to think about the tithe? Keep in mind that while the Bible does speak about the tithe, and while it can be safely concluded from the little, it says about it that every believer owes God a tithe, and, 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 and that means not just given directly to God, but to someone else on earth, whether institutions or projects or individual people, there is nothing in the Bible that specifically declares the procedural details of where and how the tithe is supposed to be paid, at least not in the, in the New Testament. There are such specific laws in the Old Testament, but there is also sufficient evidence that these laws are part of the shadows of the law, and therefore these laws are applicable under the new covenant only under the discretion of general equity at best. Besides, as we will see shortly, even the shadows of the Old Testament admitted of the use of discretion, common sense, and general equity contrary to the specific commandments. And in fact, Jesus approved of such use and violation of those commandments. To say it simply, there is more to the tithe than just giving it to a group of priests or elders. The group or session of priests or elders have to work hard to deserve it. If they don't, the obligation of the tither is to redirect his tithe. In other words, he has an obligation to pay it, but his pastor or elders are not entitled to it by default. Once we understand the biblical principle that a tithe has to be given only in the setting of two-way responsibility, the theory that the giver is obligated to give, and then it's on the church ministers that what they do with it is dispelled. The giver must make sure the money he gives goes to the right purposes. Otherwise, there is his responsibility is not to give and to redirect his money to where it will be used rightly. So then, what is the principle? Since the modern defenders of ecclesiocracy defend one-way responsibility, that is, the church member is obligated to tithe, uh, that's where the so-called local church membership matters the most, not the nonsense of fellowship, which is actually lacking in almost all the churches who practice formal membership. So the church member is obligated to tithe, but spending the money is left to the discretion of the church leadership. And since these modern defenders of ecclesiocracy point to the law of God and its commandments to tithe to the Levitical system, our best starting point in learning the principle behind tithing is to start from the exceptions to the rule. If there are exceptions to the rule, then it can be only because the principle of tithing is broken somewhere, and if we find out what, what is broken, we will be able to find the connection between tithing and the ethical judicial foundation for the responsibility of the tither. Are you interested in Christian education? Would you like to learn how to be a Christian teacher or how to run your very own Christian school with success? The GCS Apprenticeship Program can help. Learn more on our website at gcsapprenticeship.com. 
his institutes, page 513, Rashtuni mentions one such exception and comments shortly on it. Here are his words, quote, The tithe is to the Lord. Thus, in the days of Elisha, a man from Baal Shalisha brought his tithe to Elisha and his school rather than to the, than to the priests, 2 Kings 4.42. In so doing, he was exercising his right to give to that which served the Lord best rather than to an official but apostate priesthood, end of quote. Now notice how Rishtuni pays homage to the fundamental principle of the Reformation, the right and duty of private judgment, a principle that today is forgotten in every single church and denomination that claims to be Reformed or Protestant. I think, however, Rashtuni is slightly incorrect here. Not, not, no, not incorrect in the fact that an individual has the right and duty to judge who is eligible to receive his tithe. That much is obvious if we understand the principle of biblical responsibility and accountability. Where he is slightly incorrect is that he believes that the principle for giving is to that which serves the Lord best. While it does have some merit to it, I think there is more to consider in this situation. At least we know from the Bible that even under the Old Covenant, the laws for the tithe were such as to be open to breaking when it came to giving. An individual could decide to give elsewhere, not to the priest, and that didn't have to incur guilt. The Bikurim the first fruits mentioned in this example were specifically to be offered as a grain offering and also eaten before the Lord in a sort of presentation of Israel. <clears throat> Taking them to a prophet somewhere in the wilderness was a violation of the law, but Elisha didn't see it as such. He instead used it to make the first example of feeding hundreds of people with just a little food, and some even remained pre-imaging Jesus' similar miracles. Now, this connection... Uh, with Jesus' miracles is important, and we will return to it shortly. The question still is, what did the man of Baal Shalisha, which literally means the Lord of the Three, or the Lord of the Trinity, by the way, and is a city that no one really knows where it is. The question is, what did the man see in Elisha to find it necessary to break the law and give him what belonged to the priest and the temple? It must have been the same thing as in another example, where what by the law, belonged to the priest, was given to a non-priest. 1 Samuel 21, 4-6, when Ahimelech, the priest, gave David and his men the consecrated bread, which only the priests were allowed to eat of. Another violation of the law, and yet God didn't seem displeased with it. In fact, Jesus affirms 1-5 and Mark 2, 23-28. Now, Jesus' words here indicate something, which is usually missed in the English translations, which translated either the consecrated or sacred bread or the show bread. Now, the phrase Jesus uses, however, in Greek is different. It literally means the bread of the presence in all three Gospels. Now, the original Hebrew text of 1 Samuel 24 only uses the phrase sacred or consecrated bread. Why did Jesus change it to of the presence? The phrase, bread of the presence, is used only twice in the Old Testament, once in Exodus 25.30 and then in Exodus 39.36. Usually that bread is called Kodesh, that is consecrated. And Ahimelech uses that same phrase, but for this specific case, Jesus prefers to call it of the presence, as in its less common use. He obviously does it to indicate that the shadow parts of the law can be ignored when a greater issue is at hand. He's speaking of his disciples violating the Sabbath, which was true. They were violating it. 
and after giving his examples from the law, he ended with his justification of their actions. Something greater than the temple is here. Now we're beginning to see the common element. There is a presence here. Jesus preferred to use the less known name of the bread, the bread of the presence, and he ended his lesson with, there is a greater presence here. Returning to his other example in Matthew 12, the priests breaking the Sabbath in the temple are not being guilty. Why? Well, they're in the temple, and the temple was not a magic place. It was the presence of God. Obviously, if the presence was gone, the temple was nothing. So the only thing that saved the priests was God's presence. Now that we have noticed the common element, we can return to the man of Baal Shalisha and ask, what did the man see in Elisha after all? Again, he saw the presence of God. The story of him bringing Elisha, his first fruits, is right in the middle of a long passage, 2 Kings chapters 4 through 6, describing the everyday miracles Elisha was performing in Israel and outside Israel. Now, modern cessationist theologians to the contrary, miracles are not limited to proving the veracity of a word. They have a much greater function, and that function is to indicate of the presence of God. All the miracles in the Gospels were meant to prove to Israel that the one called Emmanuel, that is God with us, is here. Are you the one, asked John the Baptist, or should we wait for another? Now there's your long Baptist tradition of distrusting God's miracles and trusting man's words. And tongue in cheek. Jesus' answer was, look at all these miracles. What else do you need to know? Whose presence is here? Such examples can be found everywhere in the Bible where miracles indicated the presence of God. So the man of Baal Shalisha knew well this Elisha dude has miracles happening around him all the time. God's presence must be with him. I will put first fruits where God's presence is. The same principle can be seen in other instances of the tithe or of any offering whatsoever. Why did Abraham give Melchizedek a tithe? Hebrews 7 explains it. Melchizedek, whose name is both priest and king, was the presence of the very God. Quote, without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning nor of days nor end of life, but made like the Son of God. Abraham, whose spirit was very sensitive to the presence of God, remember Genesis 18.3, and he could certainly sense when someone has the presence with them, this is what made him give a tithe. Jacob's pledge to give a tithe was related to the same factor, God's presence. In Genesis 28, 10 through 22, Jacob had a dream and he sees God and God repeats to him the promise of his covenant. Jacob wakes up and his reaction is, now surely the Lord is in this place and I didn't know that. Again, God's presence is there. He calls the place Bethel, the house of God, even though there was no temple nor any institutional arrangement there. And by the way, there has never been any in the history of Israel. And, and then Jacob promises to serve God and wait for it, to surely give a tithe to God. Again, it is God's presence and that in a place where there's only a stone and there has never been anything else. No church, no temple, not even a synagogue. And there are many other examples in the Bible. 
where people felt obligated to give money where they saw the presence of God. When the Israelites contributed to the tabernacle, later to the temple, when Naaman wanted to donate a fortune to Elisha, when the Christians in Jerusalem sold their property and took the money to the apostles, etc., etc., etc. To this, we need to add the special tithe of the third year, which was not even related to the temple system in any possible way. Deuteronomy 14, 28, 28 through 29 and also 26, 12 through 15. It was supposed to be kept in the towns and used as welfare for the poor, the strangers, yes, welfare for the strangers in the Bible, the Levites, the orphans, and the widows. But again, mentioning all these categories meant that the tithe was supposed to demonstrate that God is present among his people Israel, for his abundance and mercy can't be anything else but a sign to his presence. Emmanuel, God with us. In every such example of paying some form of a tithe or making an offering to God, the common element was that the giver saw the presence of God and gave to the place where he saw that presence. The presence was the factor. While Rishtun is correct that the giver has the responsibility to decide who, who deserves the tithe, I think his explanation for the fundamental criteria is inadequate. It's not where the money will serve the best, it's where the presence of God is. But how could a giver decide where the presence of God is? Isn't he supposed to just accept the word of his ecclesiastical rulers as to where that presence is as a sign of submission to church authorities? Not at all. In all these cases in the word, the presence of God was a personal, direct revelation to the giver. Ahimelech the priest knew from Samuel's prophecy that David was God's beloved. Abraham personally knew Melchizedek was an image of the Son of God. The men from Baal Shalisha could personally judge that God's spirit was with Elisha. Jesus' disciples had a personal revelation. He was a God, or he was God. Peter, Peter, flesh and blood did not reveal that to you, but my Father in heaven. Jacob had a dream and a personal revelation. The presence of God is not determined by institutional arrangements. Sometimes God does abide by the institutional arrangements as long as the leaders of the institution obey his voice, which hasn't happened too often in history and certainly far from happening today in the so-called so -called reformed evangelical churches. In other times, God is outside the institutions that are officially bearing his name as he was in the times of the prophets, and in the time of Jesus, and in the time of the Reformation. When God is outside those institutions, it is the responsibility of his worshipers to seek and pray for personal revelation to indicate his presence and redirect their tithe accordingly. The tithe is owned to God. Since it is owned to God, it must be paid where God is. If a church or other institution wants that tithe, it must make sure it is obedient to God and therefore has his presence. If not, it doesn't deserve the tithe, and then it is the responsibility of the giver to not give it his tithe, but seek the presence of God. The presence of God is, however, a concept long forgotten in our churches. It was the central concept of the Old Covenant, where God's presence was decided everything, decided more than any institutional organization or ceremonial activities could decide. Israel in Elijah's time had a powerful monarchy, an established temple hierarchy, was a prosperous and vibrant culture still eating the fruit of blessing from the previous generations. And yet, when Elijah left Israel and went to Mount Sinai, God's presence was there with him, the lone ranger prophet of no roots and no church membership. Remember, Elijah was an exile in Israel. He couldn't even offer his mandatory sacrifices under the law. The Bible clearly speaks 
It is God's presence that decides everything. Institutional action doesn't. Even where the institutional leadership has all the power, where the presence of God is missing, eventually they become powerless and lose their churches and children and eventually the culture. The presence of God is a central concept in the New Testament. In fact, this was the very promise of the New Covenant that God will establish His dwelling place among and in His people and will walk among them and that the, that the new name He will be known by is Emmanuel, God with us. This presence was very obvious in the descriptions of the early church in Acts. Both Jews and Gentiles acknowledged that presence. And yet, there is nothing even close to it in our modern churches in America today. Our churches are all dead for all practical purposes. They are all devoid of the presence of God. No one can recognize it there. In fact, if anything, our whole generation, probably a few generations before us, has lost even the sense of discerning the presence of God. We don't even know how it looks like. We haven't even experienced it once. We don't know what it is to have a church really moved by the Spirit and the Word. All we have is whitewashed, whitewashed tombs that we attend every Sunday to participate in services that are grimmer and more so, somber than a funeral service. And then we demand that people attend them regularly and pay us money for them. The tithe, therefore, must be restored in its true meaning and intent. But more important than, than that... Our discernment of the presence of God needs to be restored before anything else is restored. We in the U.S. have been losing not only the culture, but also, also our children. And our loss has a spiritual reason for it. The temple was lost when God's glory cloud, God's presence, left. This may be the reason we're losing today. And the restoration will start when each one of us prays for, seeks earnestly, and through the Holy Spirit develops that discernment that will make us capable of saying like Jacob, now I can see that God is in this place, and then act and tithe accordingly. The book I will assign for reading this week is R.J. Rushtuni, Tithing and Dominion. While after so many years and attempts at consistent development of my uh, views of tithing, I would like to correct a, a few details in that book, if I could. Its general view of the tithe and its relation to dominion in Christian life is unsurpassed in all Christian literature so far. The tithe is not about your church and not about any church. The tithe is about God and His kingdom. Once we learn that principle, many things will change to the better. And remember, in your praying and giving Bulgarian Reformation Ministries, God has been with us in Bulgaria, granting success to a mission that, unlike many other missions, has operated on a shoestring budget. We need help to edit translated books, and we need help to publish these books and put them in the hands of Bulgarian Christians. Visit BulgarianReformation.com, subscribe to our newsletters to find out if God's presence is with our mission, and donate. And God bless you all. This was a Reconstructionist Radio War Room production. Acts to the Root with Bojidar Marinov. Please visit bojidarmarinov.com and reconstructionistradio.com forward slash Acts to the Root. The Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network brings to you a complete lineup of podcasts where you will hear practical and tactical theology. Our desire is not simply that you consume our shows, but that you also live out your faith in every area of life. We can talk all day long about these things, but if we fail to put them into practice, 
then we fail as ambassadors of Jesus Christ, our King. Subscribe now to your favorite Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network shows, or you can subscribe to the Reconstructionist Radio Master Feed, where all of the content we produce, including the audiobooks and audio articles, will pop up as soon as they are available. And don't forget to visit reconstructionistradio.com to volunteer as a narrator or to partner with this ministry financially. May the Holy Spirit stir you into action for Christ and His kingdom.